This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie, and I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you a guest from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Adam Merced, a.k.a. DJ Mode, music supervisor and DJ for the New York Football Club. I'm really excited to have you on the show with me today. We go back a long ways. Um, Yes, we do. Dude, really great to have you on the show, man. No, it's my pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me. You've had an, an amazing journey, right? Like we met at a spot that doesn't even exist anymore. Level V, yeah. meatpacking, which was a cool spot. It was underground, you know, underground, sure. not just in the manner in which you played the music, but it was underground in the sense that it was literally, you had to go down steps. <laughs> yeah, it was literally a cave. Like they, It they was literally like, a cave. Carved out a cave and made it into a nightclub. And I remember that night because I went to the spot really on a lark. Like, I don't, I don't really think I was really set to go there, but for some reason I was in this piece. I was solo and you were killing it, dude. Like, oh, <laughs> like <laughs> seriously, you, I remember I came up to the booth and was like, yo son, for somebody playing in meatpacking at the time in which you were playing where meatpacking was still very popular, but the DJs were not always like of the culture. And that's a distinction that we'll get into, but you were playing like you were really playing. And I was like, yo, who is this dude on the turntable? And that's how we got to know each other. Like literally it became one of my go-to spots because of your skill as a DJ, because what I recognized, not just in the music you were playing, but in the culture that you were bringing to a spot that wasn't necessarily looking for culture. Let's start off with you telling me your evolution as a DJ, like what got you into music and what got you to level V on that particular fateful night where we met? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, listen, man, everything's meant to be. And I take that as a high compliment. So thank you, man. I really appreciate that. I began actually at the age of 13. My uncle had a set of turntables and he was kind of dabbling in it. And that was my first exposure to actually touching a turntable and DJing. I grew up around music, family played music all the time. Parents had a huge record collection, very diverse set of music, taste. My father actually was an MC. He didn't do it professionally, but back in the wild style days in the Bronx, he went by MC score and he did all that. So I I kind of was educated on things that came before me. From that point on, obviously I was a fan of music. How did I get to level V was through, I used to work at the Scratch DJ Academy, which is a DJ school that started by Jam Master J. So I was an instructor over there. That's when I formed a lot of my DJ relationships. So I, I met a lot of the DJs that were in the scene and, legendary artists and DJs and producers and such. And so I struck up a relationship with a few of those guys. I ended up covering one night at Level V. I said, I remember one guy was out and he ended up covering and they fell in love with me. This was a DJ named by the name of Todd Ballas. And since he's moved on and he's gone on to do incredible, amazing things, but he was like, they absolutely love you. And he's like, honestly, he's like, it's one of those things I was planning on leaving anyway. And he passed the gig on to me. That you know, became my night. Yeah, that's how I found myself there. It's crazy that you mentioned Scratch Academy because 
in the sequence of when we run these, it's all kind of random. So what I'm saying might not make sense to listeners okay. at the time, but I interviewed Rob Prince Bay before we got on. <laughs> so, wow, wow, so wow. literally my other slot was him. Right. That's and incredible. so we talked a lot about what they do, what that means. So what I'm pulling out from that is a couple of things. One one of the things that we talked about is so interesting that you've talked about it too, is this mentorship yeah. thing, that this yeah. idea that through your family and even through your professional career, there's been a mentorship element that's been a part of your journey in music. Tell me a little bit more about that. I think through that environment of being around it, I think it was just through osmosis. You know, so I, there was no direct with the exception of Todd Malice. And I would say Neil Armstrong, who was Jay-Z's DJ, that they really took to forming that kind of mentorship, kind of the OG kind of looking out for you and giving you advice and staying in constant contact. But through just being in that environment and seeing all those teachers and watching them do their symposiums and their talks, I learned so much and I was able to pick up so much. And it was something that I had exponential growth, not only in my DJ set of skills, just because, again, that for sort of like environment of competition and having all those other DJs around, it forced you to raise your skill set because obviously you didn't want to be the scrub in that room, so to speak, that for sure. And then it also gave you something to, you know, sort of an aspirational because when I began with Scratch, I was 17 years old. I wasn't even able to get into nightclubs. I wasn't able to do all those things. And oddly enough, when you and I met, I still wasn't old enough to actually be DJing in that club, but just through the relationships, I was able to get those opportunities. So again, that's how I take that mentorship and that relationship that I formed without scratch. I would never have formed those relationships. So much of that is a part of culture that Absolutely. we build on these blocks of what came before. And then we use them to, in a way, create something new. You getting an opportunity to see nightlife at the particular time that you did that slice of life. And obviously you're still engaged in it, but you've moved on to do different things, which we'll get to in the show. But I'm curious about what you saw or experienced in nightlife that made it such a vital place to make these kind of connections. I think for myself, it was simply being in a completely different environment, one that I didn't have access to. You have an idea in your head of what the club life and the scene would be like. You listen to DJs on the radio and on television, you read magazines at that time, and you formed your own opinion. It was just simply using your imagination, right? So I had an idea in my head of what type of DJ that I wanted to be, the kind of career trajectory that I would take. And through those relationships and being able to check out, let's say, for instance, one of the first nightclubs that I was actually allowed into was Bungalow 8 which was very, very iconic. Yeah. And what was so incredible about that was it blew my mind. I'm now 18, 19 years old around that age, not even able to legally drink or be in the location, but being able to see kind of the scene and understand really the curation of the music. So I, I was definitely a hip hop fan through and through, grew up on hip hop. And that was like my main, even to this day, is still my main, I would say culture that I identify with more mm -hmm. than anything. However, seeing how, it was kind of an open format and seeing how the DJs in their mixed genres and seeing how the crowd reacted to it definitely opened my mind to other possibilities. And then also seeing and understanding financially how you could benefit and how you could go if you went that career route, what that could potentially mean for you if you really stuck to that path. 
nightlife has always been one of these spaces where I think it's good and bad in the sense that, and there's so much economic forces that play into nightlife anywhere, but I think particularly in New York, the way in which the clubs were in the 80s and and 90s is very different from the economic model and the social structure of the city and a lot of different stuff. So when you talk about a spot like Bungalow 8, another like iconic club for the moment in which it existed, right? And you're seeing these audiences, this sort of diversity in the music. How was that translating to the experience in the crowd, right? Because I've always seen, like when I started first started going to clubs, there were clubs that were like for Black people that yeah. only played hip-hop. And if you went to a club with white people, they, they wasn't playing hip-hop, right? Yeah, yeah. And now hip-hop has kind of become, and pop, and become like the de facto music for most clubs. I'm not counting like those that are niche or really focused on EDM and, and that kind right. of stuff. I'm putting that to the side. But like a base level New York City night spot, you're likely going to hear hip-hop. <laughs> like, yeah. Like a yeah. majority of the night, right? Yes. But sometimes the crowd doesn't really reflect that or there's angst about that. So I'm curious about that whole experience of we're in these spaces, but sometimes not of the spaces, if that makes sense. That makes complete sense. I think you said it very well when you explained how diverse the crowd was. I didn't expect that. It was a great mixture just of this demographic. And then you have, again, for a place like Bungalow 8, it attracted models and athletes and, you know, kind of the New York social elite. It was very mixed and it showed me and opened me up to understanding of music is completely universal. In my head, I had this idea of, well, you go to the tunnel, the tunnel's a hip hop spot. And that's kind of the route that I always wanted to go to. You're listening to New York radio at the time and and that's all I'm limited to. So I'm kind of like, okay, well, this is ultimately where I'm going to go. My heroes like Jam Master J is straight up hip hop and I'm going to go that route. And then going to a nightlife place like Among the Way, it became completely diverse where they were playing hardcore hip hop, but then they're also playing reggae. They're also playing house. They're also playing like it was just a great big mixture of that. And so to me, that was definitely like my taste in music, what I was listening to, but it wasn't how I played. So it Mm -hmm. definitely affected how I looked at purchasing records and building out my set after that moment and after kind of being exposed to that. So it was all stuff that I love, but I didn't think early on in my career of kind of like intertwining that and weaving that into my skill set, into my style of DJing and becoming like someone who just used all different genres and mixed them all up and did things like that. When did you really start to feel comfortable with what you liked? And like you said, you knew what you liked, but you weren't at the very beginning using it in your sets. And then there was a transition there. So when did you start to feel like, you know, what I like and what I'm exposed to other people are going to like as well. And that's going to work in different rooms and that kind of confidence. I think that was just a maturation process. And I couldn't tell you the day that it happened, but I definitely know that I practiced a tremendous amount. And even to this day, I still practice and and work on my sets. And I always trust my ear. So I would come to this place where I was like, okay, regardless whether this works or it doesn't work, you know, I know that this is something that's incredibly creative and unique. I think that even though every DJ Back then, and that's why we speak about the times now versus the time then, I think there was a complete pride that was taken in being an individual and being unique and having your own skill set and not stealing another DJ's mixes and not kind of doing another DJ's transitions to where present day, that's exactly what everyone does. They end up using certain edits of music and even transition records that simply just get you from one place to another or one BPM set to another BPM set or transitioning in genres 
And it makes it incredibly easy and kind of thoughtless in the process. So for me, it was just taking what I learned and applying it in my own special and unique way. And whether I lived or died on that, I felt okay. I felt comfortable in that space because I knew that that was my unique take on open format DJing. I think one other thing to add is that you mentioned like having an all black club or an all black, like I'm a Hispanic, you know, that grew up in the Bronx, but identify with more of the hip hop culture than anything. Like so where so much people would see me and maybe expect a certain type of style. I think I was able to succeed in that space as well because I gave you something that was a little bit different um, in the way that of what you may have expected during that time period. I want to jump on something that you said there that I think is very interesting. This idea of sameness and what I like to call like a monoculture. You cited that back in the day, this mythical day that we're kind of discussing, that there was a little bit more variety. You felt that you had the space and the ability to kind of go out and figure some things out on your own. Right. And that then was incorporated into your sets. And now things that people might have frowned upon, i.e., taking people's sets or kind of jacking beats and what have you. Now you feel is a little bit more commonplace. Like what cultural shift has happened where people feel comfortable in replication rather than individuality? And maybe that's a bigger question than just music. Are there things you're seeing that's causing what used to be like, oh, that's kind of corny to be like, eh, everybody does it. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. The only thing, and again, my opinion, I, I can't yeah. really Man, put we, my entire finger on it, right? We're in, we in the opinion business, right? There we go, right, we're in the yeah. opinion business, for sure. So, I, I mean, for me, I think it's just, it's societal. I think it's one of those things that it's a trickle-down effect. And once you begin to accept kind of certain things, you open the door for, you know, this space, you create a space for people to push the line a little bit. And I think the people who necessarily didn't have the same access to the art form or didn't have the same level of appreciation for the art form, they continued to tiptoe into that space until it became normal. And now people, the general crowd wouldn't frown upon it or the basically ownership of the nightclubs wouldn't frown upon it because it didn't change the economics of the situation. If anything, where you were hiring DJs for their specific unique set style and you would go out to a nightclub, in your case, you came to see me every Saturday at Level V, let's say. That you came for a reason, you came specifically because you know what kind of set I was going to do. You kind of had an idea of how I was going to play and you enjoyed that particular type of music and that particular type of style. I think once the invention of Serato, because I used to play on vinyl only, but once the introduction of Serato and MP3s on the laptop became a thing, I think more and more people came into the art form and they became less about the actual art of the DJ and it became more about playing the same songs that you were going to hear the other DJs play. It started there. I think it started with just simply like, okay, what's your entire library? Give me your entire library and I'm going to play it pretty much the same way. And where the club owners and managers of clubs were able to get cheaper labor and cheaper DJs to come in and in their mind do the same thing because they weren't able to kind of recognize the nuances and the special styles and the skill set that came along with being a kind of a professional and a, and a seasoned veteran DJ it pushed out a lot of guys from doing nightclubs because of that specific reason. They began to drop rates because of that. And you know, you get what you pay for. So I think that it became that and they ended up having a set of people in the, you didn't have necessarily gatekeepers or anyone to check this behavior. They kind of started to school themselves. And I think ultimately they just started rewriting the rules and it became okay to 
steal mixes and to play things a certain way. And just, hey, you know what? As long as people are still coming in and paying the cover charge and buying drinks, what's the big deal? You know, they became less important about the type of music and the live experience that they created for their patrons. It's unfortunate, but it definitely created a shift, though, for sure. You've done a lot of different things over these past few years, right? Walk me through a little bit of that career trajectory and where not saying anything's wrong with nightlife and nightclub DJing, but you've definitely now you've worked for the Knicks, you're at the New York Football Club. Like, kind of take me and our listeners through some of that transition to how the music business seems like it's kind of really opened up for you. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, it, for me, it, it's definitely created a completely different career path than the one that I set out to when I was, you know, a young teenager just beginning at, you know, Scratch DJ Academy. Oddly enough, I was at uh, Level V and Jimmy Rollins of the Philadelphia Phillies was the second baseman for them, was actually at the nightclub, hired me to DJ his birthday party. From there, I'll try to give you the quickest, the quickest version of this. Yeah, 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 no doubt. He hired me to DJ his birthday party out in Philadelphia. I met someone from the NBA. They hired me to DJ at the 2008 All-Star weekend. So they had me, they did a jam session, did all that stuff. About two years later... I kept on having them as a client and working every all-star. And that's when I met the people from the New York Knicks and they had brought me over. I started doing some guest DJ spots and they asked me to come on board as the associate music director. It was a totally different job. It was a completely different opportunity for me because it wasn't just simply DJing. It was, you know, a lot more programming, a lot of editing. And, you know, I had always dabbled in production, but that was the first time that I started creating edits and remixes during that time period of working on music for videos and things like that. The New York City Football Club was created five years ago, brand new MLS team, and they were looking for someone to head up the music department and be the music director for that entire squad. And they reached out to me. And so I went from there to from the Knicks in Madison Square Garden, where I handled boxing and WNBA and NBA events, went over there and became you know, the music director, where I essentially informed the entire space. I created the music for the videos, the entrance music. So it's a lot more production. And I also still DJ. I also create the mixes. I play live games. And that's how I got into like the live sports area. Now, live sports, this takeover of music, I think when most people think about music in a stadium setting, it's very much like the who let the dogs out and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Like we think about this big, loud arena rock. Right. Yes. Jock jams, essentially. (laughs) Type of deal. Yeah. (laughs) I love Jock Jams. Where did that come yeah, from? We all, we all do. It's classic, but that is the <laughs> sound of the stadiums. I'm like, you know, every time I think about it, I'm like, that's that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you've described is a far cry from Jock Jams, right? Right. What do you think was the transition that made organizations, whether it's the Knicks organization or now New York Football Club, understand that what you're doing as an artist and as a curator is A, important, and B, different from Jock Jams? Yeah, no, for sure. I think with the New York Knicks, I can appreciate that experience for what it was, but it was very much more structured and I was working under someone. The reason why I took the job over at Yankee Stadium with the New York City Football Club was because they did value my unique perspective on New York sports and New York live entertainment. When I had the meeting and I met with them, it was super important for me to explain to them that I didn't want to do job jams, that it was very important for me to put my own spin on things and for me to, again, have a place where I can really stake my claim and be proud to put my name on this. 
And uh, it was completely my responsibility. I wouldn't want to take that opportunity if I wasn't able to completely do it my way. And I'm blessed enough to say that they trust me and they trust my decision making and how I go about that. And they value it. They're like, you're an authentic New Yorker, born and raised in the Bronx, Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. They believe that I understood it and I was able to play to a different set of cultures and ultimately have about 30,000 fans at a time. And they trusted me to be diverse in my music selections, as well as the curation and the creation of the music to be able to head this up and bring it over the top. And thank God I've been able to do that for the last five years with them. There's a lot of interesting things going on in that mix, right? Because I think New York Football Club is, A, it's new relatively to New York. So when in comparison to the Yankees, the Knicks, the two football teams, the Giants and the Jets and the Mets and everything that's out there in New York, they're coming in fresh, so to speak. So they have to build audience. They have to build community. And it sounds like there was a thought process that music should play a role in how they do that and connect to fans, right? How much of your thought process is it knowing that you have to play to not just a wide variety of people that are in the stands, but we're talking age groups, we're talking occasions, it's incorporating the element of sport in general. How do you go through that process as you're putting all of this together, particularly with the squad that, like I said, is kind of young, right? Yeah, very much so. And I think that that culture is baked into all those other teams that you mentioned. And we had an opportunity to be fresh and different. And that's what I can appreciate about them is they came in and they asked me for my specific take on it. And the way I looked at it was that it's ultimately storytelling. And you're storytelling to this big group of people. But what brings them together, what joins them is, again, universally music. That's the soundtrack of life. I believe that the sport obviously brings them together. So all those different things using those elements and also just thinking about what's the sound of New York and what they can relate to, what's something that, whether you're young or old, sounds familiar to you, but also is innovative as well. Like now we have this opportunity where we don't have to be held to the rules of a building like Madison Square Garden, where there's a tremendous amount of pressure to be like a cathedral, to be like a location that is kind of a tourist attraction. This is something that is for us, for people of New York. You have the opportunity to build that ground up. So I think that was the approach that I took to it. And it seems like it resonates with fans. And I, I see that they have had an appreciation for it you know, since the beginning. What has been one of your challenges to transitioning from nightlife and very specific club type experiences to now, not just the work you're doing with New York Football Club, but just branded work in general? What's been some of the things that have been the challenge in just working with brands? Working with brands is both fun, but yeah, it's, it's incredibly fun, but it is very challenging just because I think from when you go from the school of thought of just being a DJ, it's just me up there. However, I come with that set, you know, that, that four hour set, whether you like it or not, you know, you have another day, you didn't like it, you won't come back. It's fine. Working with a brand, you have just so many different voices that you have to consider and you have to consider their brand integrity. You have to consider their culture, their fan base. I think that becomes the challenge is always remaining in that because it's just like I could come up with an idea and say, oh, that's going to be very cool because I have a certain style and I have a certain way that I like to be catered to and spoken to. If something's advertised me into that in that way, I have a unique kind of perspective on that. But it becomes much more 
paying attention to the brief, really going through the creative process and taking into account what they've done already. And then also what they haven't done and try again my best to insert myself and put my unique spin on it. And really, again, I do myself. I try to push the boundaries. I try to give them something that they haven't heard before, that they haven't used before to be completely out of the box. You know, again, not just to inspire cash registers to ring, but to really have a cultural relevant moment using music as the thing that drives that. Have you had an occasion where you've looked at a brief from a potential client and seen and just from what you know as someone who like is living in these spaces and where you've read it and felt like, yeah, this is not going to work. <laughs> like it's not going to accomplish the things that they want it to accomplish. And if that's happened, it, it kind of seems like it has, right? 1000%. It yeah. Has. <laughs> yeah. has, has there been an opportunity or room to course correct this before it happens? I think therein lies the challenge. I think it's one of those things where I've seen copy written that, you know, again, that's not my job, but I've been like, that's inauthentic. That's absolutely not how someone would speak in that scenario. I've seen just people, again, that are not of the culture creating things for the culture just because it is, again, the dollars are there, right? The attention is there. The eyeballs are there. I think music is a big example of that. We see so many people that are participating and benefiting from using the culture. And I think that occasionally, let's say they hire me or they hire one or two other elements into that creative process that somehow bring a little bit of authenticity to how it was created, kind of saying, oh, well, music was created by a Latinx person who they're able to kind of create a narrative around that. But the other 52 participants, you know, in the whole storyline and in the whole chain of it, it wasn't that. So mm. I think there definitely needs to be more representation on the back of house side of things to help that, you know, because it, it does become challenging when you're trying to explain that to them. And it's okay. It's like totally fine. We're all different. We all kind of like experience life differently, but it's frustrating because you, the economics come into play and they're like, well, we want that dollar. we got to somehow figure out a way to play in this space. There's tremendous amount of brands that you just go look on Twitter and see how people speak and communicate that you're like, that's never been like that five years ago. This is not you. But now your brand does that. And now your brand wants to participate in this space. So it's challenging, but it's great that they're beginning to see the value in having someone who is really a part of the culture, someone who grew up on it, someone who really understands it very well, and allowing me that opportunity to just be in that room and to kind of help create with them. They've been good, but I've also had pushback I've had some good and bad experience. I've had some great experience where they're like, oh, wow, we never thought of looking at that way. And then I've also gotten the complete rejection of like, no, I don't get it. So we're going to go with it like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. Because you don't simply understand. But that's the point. You're speaking to a completely different, unique, you're speaking a unique language that you definitely don't understand. I do my best to, when I look at a brief or I look at an opportunity to make sure that I'm being authentic to myself and to why I do what I do. Because... I don't want to have a catalog of things where it's like, yeah, you made a tremendous amount of money and you benefited and all this other stuff, but I can't be proud of that body of work because that's not my voice. That's not my language. That's not what I do. And as a curator, you're really staking, your reputation is your work. It's not in the same way that someone who is strictly corporate, they are benefiting and trading off of titles, right? I was the SVP of this at this place. Now I'm the SVP of that of this place. Like none of us actually really see your work, right? We just right. evaluate a title, but your work is existing in the space in which they are having another experience. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think of most recently, I can remember again, working on the Cadillac campaign Mm -hmm. and that's Cadillac. There's a whole agency and a whole group of people, the president, everyone's involved, but literally the only thing they're going to look at, they're going to look at Cadillac. But my brand is actually DJ Mode. My brand and myself is I'm inserting myself into that narrative and into that equation. And that's where it becomes super important for me to vet these opportunities and make sure that they align with, you know, my belief system and, you know, and something again that I I can be excited about, that I can be proud of to show that body of work that becomes very important. And I think, you know, a lot of people in that space, in that kind of corporate world, they don't understand that. They just see it as, well, it's a job, take it, you know? (laughs) And so it's like, it really is my reputation. And if I don't stay true to myself, a number one, feel as though I can't, you know, feel good about myself. I can't really look myself in the mirror at night, you know what I mean? And be proud of it. And that's definitely not why I got into this industry and why I began doing music. And it's something that as soon as I don't enjoy it anymore, I wouldn't do it. You know, it's just one of those things where I absolutely love what I do and participating in these spaces and creating these experiences and being a part of the culture is something that I thoroughly enjoy. And that's why I take those jobs. And that's why I feel like I have the brand equity that I do. You know, I want to talk about the Cadillac experience. But before we get to Cadillac, you'd said something that I thought was very interesting about reputation. And it seems now that brands and organizations in general have so much of the pricing power. And so the same elements that we saw in nightlife, right, where as more and more people kind of came into it, they didn't really understand the culture in a way that kind of forces the economics down, right? Because they could pay you, very skilled person, X, but if they just want playlist, they can get somebody else like really cheap, right? Or they can right. just get like a Pandora premium account, right? <laughs> on the, <laughs> exactly. the, on the lowest true. level, right? They can it's just true. plug into something as background music. And I say all that to say that when you talked about the events that you've done, the branded work that you've done, they're hiring potentially expertise that's curation-based. And that's very much tied to your reputation and what you're building, not just now, but in the future. Do you see a place where that could also get threatened by those like low-level folks who kind of, they're willing to just take the check, right? Like they're not thinking about all the stuff that you and others that are really focused on this are thinking because they're just like, oh yeah, you want me to do this? Sure. It's a job, right? And that's the piece that really jumped out to me. Like you're not looking at these things as just jobs, right? They're a bigger thing than that. I think, I mean, that's the difference between myself. I won't even take the full credit. There's tons of other guys who really do have the integrity that I would say brand integrity for how they approach their business and, you know, their model. Absolutely. I believe that there is that threat the same way that the DJ. And I think this thing is always evolving. And in our line of work where you're taking other people's music, recorded music, and you're playing it and you're curating an evening and a live experience, oh, there's a thousand percent that can come. <laughs> they could replace us with robots, essentially. Yeah. You know what I mean? At some point, you know, you go to Vegas and there's a dealer that's a bot. I've actually had a couple of nightclubs and I won't say the names, but it it made me sick to my stomach because what they wanted me to do was record, have a couple of pre-recorded live mixes. And what they were going to do is pay a busser to just stand in the place because it was going to be cheaper to do that rather than have an actual live DJ who was a skilled DJ because they felt that that was like just a high cost to pay. I think that it already began. I think that exists already. There's so many people that supplement their income and then they're like, come to the weekend and they're like, hey, this could be a side hustle for me. 
I just got to pick up a laptop and get to it. And I think the brands that I work with, I've been blessed enough to see that they value and understand that when you get a professional to do the job, you get what you paid for. There's an attention to detail, there's a skill set, there's a level of experience that can't be matched with someone just coming off the street that's done this for you know a year, let's say less than a year. They're going to see the holes in that. And I think that they're more than excited. There are people, you just got to find the clientele and the client that values that because there's someone who will buy, let's say, for instance, a car, you know, the, a lesser brand car, and then they'll buy, then there's a clientele that will buy a Mercedes. You know, there's a person walking around that's going to buy a bag from the corner store. And then there's someone who's buying a Louis Vuitton bag. I mean, you just have to find the client that values the quality and the craftsmanship and all that stuff. And I think that's what I like to position myself as Mm -hmm. and working with those brands. And immediately when I see, and it's not just a money thing, that's part of it, but it's not the deciding factor. It Mm -hmm. really is. And it really ends up being someone who really genuinely values creating these experiences for their clientele. So for instance, for the Met, when I work with them and curating an evening with them and discussing, they have sometimes they have theme nights. Most recently they had a rock exhibit that really was like about music culture and it was Mm -hmm. really, really done super well. And they brought in the best of the best. So creating that evening and that experience for their members was incredible. Like that was a job that I was happy to take, that I was happy and excited to work on. They could not have possibly picked someone off the street who does playlisting or who has just a couple hundred songs in their laptop. This is something that they look to to say, well, you have this level of expertise that spans decades worth of musical knowledge and it's very diverse. You can sort of weave in our storytelling from the exhibit and also using your own music set to kind of work that in and create an amazing, memorable evening. That's what I look to. I think there's always going to be bargain hunters and they're going to look for those clients and they will absolutely find those people that are willing to take the job. And like you mentioned, just do it for the gig or the look or the things like that, you know, but I hope that there's a resurgence of people desiring quality, just someone who really focuses and has a passion for what they do and really like an artist. I would never hire someone who just started to play piano, you know what I mean? Like versus Alicia Keys, who, you know what I mean? I would never hire them over Stevie Wonder. It's like, yeah. if I couldn't afford Stevie Wonder, I just wouldn't do it. You know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I don't want to see you tinkering around with the keys. I don't want to see you uncomfortable behind the piano. You know what I mean? So that's just how I like to look at things. No, it's true. And I think we see this in not just work that's art-based, but you see it across industry, right? Where people are looking for what I call shortcuts, right? They want to find a way around doing the hard work. And even in the space I'm in, in branding and consulting, people think you can just like make all your insights come out of an algorithm due through the data that we're collecting. And it's like, that's just giving you what happened. It's not giving you why. And that's a significant difference. And I think it's the same, but different in your space, right? Like it's not just about music being played. It's a more thoughtful expression of what you want to have in this particular moment. Absolutely. I see that parallel between our industries because I think that in the present day that we're living in, we're seeing, or I don't know if we're just not aware, I think a lot of brands and people are under the impression that these things are happening quickly. That when you see success stories and you see people that it happened quickly and that all you have to do is mimic. It looks very easy. Like someone can look at DJing, someone can look at what you do and go, oh, well, he just put this collaboration with that collaboration. And of course that worked. And everything seems so very simple when you're on the outside looking in. But when you're trying to create something of value, that's why you do what you do because you're great at it. You're a professional. You come at it and you're having a different approach. You understand that 
Rome wasn't built in a day. And if you build something that is not built on solid foundation, it's going to crumble. It's going to fail. People are going to see the holes in it. You're going to find that there's going to be more trouble down the line. It's not going to stand very long. It's not going to be something that stands the test of time because you just try to kind of like build your house on sand. You know, if, if a company does that, it's just an awful approach to doing business because you're going to lose brand loyalty. You're going to lose fans. Because it's not what we do. It's really why we do it. Yeah. You know, there's a million people that do music. There's a million consultants, right? But who does it the way that you do it? Who has your unique perspective, your background, your experience? And that's what you bring to the table. And that's what creates value. And that mixed with good company culture and good brand culture, you guys can create magic. Yeah. You can create something that's lasting. It's a really a significant thing. And I think you nailed it when you talk about there's this ease that people reflect on and they think it's transferable when it's really not, right? And I think, you know, I want to get back to Cadillac real quick, kind of walk me through what was that experience like? It was sort of a debut opportunity for you in the commercial space as well, right? So kind of take me through a little bit about that collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. So a really good friend of mine is a writer. He works with Spike Lee. He works on a lot of his projects. So he and I had created some music for uh, season one of She's Gotta Have It on Netflix. So I had that experience of working with him and his team on that. He ended up being the copywriter on this particular Cadillac spot. And what it was, it was originally supposed to be a spot for the African-American Film Festival that was happening in Miami. And they were going to run it. It was going to be like a small local spot, just kind of like on the web, YouTube ads. So he, he's like, listen, I got the perfect guy to work on this music. You know, he really understands the space. It's, it's, he's really about this life. Like, let's bring him on. And it was really, it took some convincing to get Cadillacs. They're like, well, what does he do? Well, he does live sports and he does this well, but he hasn't produced for commercials. And he hasn't done a sound design and he hasn't done any of those things. What was interesting is I absolutely have. I've never done them in a commercial. So like yeah, you said, yeah. this was my debut to do it in a commercial. So, so it's the context that, was different. Context was completely different. It was very specific. It was like they had a target audience. They exactly knew the type of spot that it needed to be. But again, the team that they hired to work on it was a completely diverse group of people in every way, gender and in demographic and in age and in race. I just thought it was like super cool to get that team together to create this spot. So I felt very comfortable in that space. And when I got the creative brief and they actually said, you know, look, we'll allow you to submit a couple things. And literally, I guess I hit the nail right on the head. And there was two submissions of music that I gave them. And I said, I want the opportunity to do the sound design as well. And so I worked directly with Cadillac, creating a lot of the sound effects and creating and, and recording the sound effects of the particular vehicle. Mm-hmm. I took it a step further. They could have sent me some stock sounds and things like that, but I made sure that I made the most of the opportunity and I showed them that, you know, my range and the ability that I had, because generally they outsourced this to a huge agency. And this was something that because of the copywriter, because of his relationships and the strength that he has and the relationships that he has with Spike Lee and Spike Lee's agency, that's why I was trusted with this job. And yeah, and after I created the music, did the sound design, I recorded the voiceover. I chose the voiceover artist and then delivered for them. And they ended up like loving the spot so much that it became a national TV commercial. That's awesome. Which changed everything, yeah. And I love yeah. that I'm hearing words like diversity, like trust. It's amazing how those elements that are taken for granted are really oftentimes the huge differences in a campaign being successful versus not being successful. I completely agree. I think that there's a level of comfortability with things remaining the same. And I'm sure they did things for years a certain type of way. 
But I think there's a shift happening in culture. And I think that consumers are definitely more aware of what's going on at the back of house and where these spots and these, these advertisements are coming from. And they have a lot more say. There's definitely a voice that the fans have. And so I think companies are understanding that they can't just phone it in. I think it's going to be very important for them to be able to produce actual proof of the diversity in their companies and the fact that there's this inclusion. And it's kind of like pulling the curtain back on mm-hmm. companies. And I think that that opens up for this incredible resurgence of like genuine creativity and inspiration. It challenged them to go out of their kind of like scope of we use this agency, they do all the creative and like creating and finding new artists and people to work with and collaborate with to just, again, remain culturally relevant in their, whatever their respective spaces are. It's awesome, man. Really great to see this kind of work coming up. And I'm excited to see where it's going to go next, man. 2020 is almost upon us. By the time people listen to this, it will actually be 2020. So we would have started a brand new year, a brand new decade, and a lot more things coming down the pipe, I could tell. Without a doubt, for sure, man. Definitely. You know, I want to get us out on the two segments that end the show. The first one is Off the Dome. So I'm going to be asking you some questions and it's going to be Off the Dome. You know what that means. All right. I I, I got you. (laughs) So the first question is, you have to choose one of these iconic nightclubs to spin at. The first one is the Tunnel, Palladium, Limelight, or Paradise Garage. You can only choose one. Which one? This one's easy. I'm tearing down the tunnel <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I'm playing Andy up three times and I'm going in with that one. <laughs> Sunday night, man. That's it. I'm in there. Yeah, that'd be a dream come true, man. If you could bring back one of these MCs, rest in peace to all three of them, but you can bring back one. Okay. Big Pun, Tupac, or Biggie? Oh, man, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. I'm going to bring back, I got to bring Pun back, man. All I right. Bring Big Pun back. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I love Big. It's, it's definitely between Pun and Big, but I feel that uh, Big's double album, I, I got enough to listen to. I, okay. I feel like I need some more Big Pun in my life. All right, yeah. all right. <laughs> in keeping with the football soccer theme, Messi or Ronaldo? Ooh, got to go Ronaldo. <laughs> Ronaldo, man. <laughs> no question. Ronaldo because of his lifestyle. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Ronaldo does it big, that's man. The truth. That's the, that's just the truth, man. Yeah, for sure. What's the one song that you will refuse to play at a party? Ooh. Like, first of all, we should never request songs from the DJ. I want to say that right off the bat. Golden rule. That's right rule yeah. number one. <laughs> yes, DJ sir. only gets love or drinks. No requests. But the one song that you will not play. Dude, I have never, and I, I can't see myself, no matter how popular the song gets, I can't do Old Town Road. I cannot do it. I'm sorry, like... Shots to little Nas X. He does his thing. He's incredible. I like to see the talent. I love that he's existing in the country space, but I do not like that song. And I okay. couldn't do it. I feel <laughs> you. I feel you. What's the one sporting event, if you could play any sporting event that you haven't already played, yeah. what would it be? That I haven't? I mean, I've done, I literally, I've done so many different sports. Can I say one that I've done already that I love so much? All right, I'll give it has you, to be someone that I haven't done. I'll, I'll, give, I'll let you do a replay. If you give, another give me a little bit of that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, because I so enjoyed doing boxing. I think okay. boxing was, it was like so close to doing a nightclub. It was like doing a party. You know what I mean? So I felt really good to be able to rock and play. And you can play dirty cuts okay. of the music as well. It didn't have to be all radio, clean, family, friendly. So that was good. I got That's my little escape, my little outlet in okay. this world. 
I feel yeah. you. I, I usually yeah. ask at the most five, but I had to do one more. So you're getting a bonus off the dome. Bonus one? Okay. Bonus cool. off the dome. <laughs> Who's going to win a chip first? The Knicks or the Brooklyn Nets? <laughs> or what I like to call the Brooklyn Gentrifiers because I'm a Knicks fan. So, That's a fact. That's a fact. I am a diehard Knicks fan. Unfortunately, I'm not seeing it in my lifetime, man. Maybe, maybe in my son's lifetime, but the Nets would get one. Okay. absolutely get one before the Knicks, unfortunately. I'm a Knicks fan through and through. Right. I think you're right. The last segment of the show is called The Drop, where I ask guests to share something with my listeners that they think is going to be valuable. It can be anything at all. I'm going to do the same. So I'll let you go first with your drop. I really would implore everyone to listen to Section 2. It's a new artist, new R&B artist singer-songwriter, does all his own music. He's absolutely incredible. I want to also mention I've been listening to this podcast called Entre Leadership. It's been really helpful. One particular episode that stands out is David Goggins. So that was pretty amazing. Also, the Queen and Slim soundtrack. Okay. That's the other joint that I'm bumping right now. I think that's absolutely phenomenal. And lastly, a book that I'm reading is called Stop Making Sense. And that's by Michael Fanwell. And that's pretty amazing. It's, it's just a, a book about the art of inspiring anybody. All right. That's something that I, I really, really enjoy right now. Okay. Awesome. And you, yeah. you gave a lot of good stuff in I there. I gave a couple, a couple yeah, for, you gave, uh, for, you the, gave yeah, for the new year. I'm greedy. I'll take them all, man. I'll take all right, them all. Good. My drop is a book that I got this past fall called New Power. And it's by Jeremy Hymans and Henry Timms. And Jeremy founded Purpose, which is an agency focused on social capital, social entrepreneurship within marketing and branding space. And I've known folks at Purpose for a long time. Many of them have spoken at a conference that I used to do called Influencer Conference. And so I got a copy of Jeremy's book. I did an interview with another person at Purpose. It was just a great read. It kind of talks about the power of philanthropy, the power of social as we move into these next years and decades. So it's a good read for those who are trying to get a sense on what power can look like when used for social good. So I want to recommend that book to all our listeners. Dude, this has been awesome. This is incredible, man. I had a great time, man. Thank you again, Phil. Yeah, man, it's been great. And I'm glad to have you on the show. And I got to get in some of these rooms where you're playing, man. That's the next goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, in 2022, you got a, you got a lot of invites coming your way. It's been a pleasure having the one and only DJ Mo join me on the deep dive. We traveled back to some of the legendary moments and spots in New York nightlife and traced Mo's journey as a DJ and artist. We discussed how culture is a force to tell meaningful stories, and in turn, the soundtrack of those stories is music. There's ups and downs of working with brands, the chances of the Knicks winning a championship. It's all in here, and I hope you enjoyed it. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.